Negotiators are trying to extend the truce between Israel and Hamas, which is now in its sixth day. Coming up, an Israeli reservist on a brief home leave during the temporary ceasefire tells personal stories from his two weeks stationed inside Gaza. It's Wednesday, November 29th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The Biden administration will make free COVID-19 tests available to schools starting early next month. School districts can request the test and distribute them to students, staff, and the community. And ballot shortages are a rare occurrence in American elections. Earlier this month in Mississippi, a shortage of voting ballots led to huge lines at some polling sites. We can say for certain that there were individuals who walked away from the lines because of how long they were. More on what went wrong that day coming up. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A Red Cross convoy makes its way from Egypt, from Gaza to Egypt at the Rafah border, while a crowd looks on amid news that Hamas was releasing more hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners and detainees held by Israel. Families on both sides of the Israel-Hamas war waiting for word that loved ones would be released during this pause in fighting. Israeli officials say two hostages were released by Hamas today. Roughly 10 additional hostages are expected to be released soon in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. NPR's Brian Mann is following developments from Tel Aviv. Hamas said the two hostages already released have Russian citizenship and were let go as a courtesy to Russian President Vladimir Putin. This is the sixth and final day of a temporary truce between Hamas and Israel hashed out by international mediators. Talks have been underway to extend the truce beyond today, but so far no deal has been struck. The Red Cross is expected to bring more Israelis out of captivity later tonight, and if all goes as planned, Palestinians held by Israel will then be freed. NPR's Brian Mann reporting. In Arizona, two Republican county supervisors are facing criminal charges after refusing to certify their county's election results last year by the legal deadline. NPR's Hansi Lowang reports the supervisors put close to 50,000 people's votes at risk. Republican Supervisors Tom Crosby and Peggy Judd of Arizona's Cochise County are charged with conspiring to delay the local counting of votes and interfering with the ability of the state's top election official to complete statewide counting last year. Crosby and Judd found no legitimate problems with the counts, but they refused to meet the state's legal deadline for certifying them. Many election watchers around the country fear this case could inspire people who want to cast doubt on election results to try to disrupt certification for next year's races. Arizona's state attorney general's office brought the charges and said in a statement, quote, repeated attempts to undermine our democracy are unacceptable. Hansi Luong, NPR News. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter's funeral service was today attended by her family and friends in her home parish in Plains, Georgia. Mrs. Carter died earlier this month at the age of 96. Delegations from around the world are getting ready for COP28. The 2023 Climate Change Conference launches tomorrow in Dubai, overshadowed by the reality that countries are not on track to meet their long-standing goal of preventing the planet from warming by any more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. The Dow closes up 35 points, ending the day at 35,452. It's NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A small group of pro-Palestinian protesters disrupted the start of Boston City Council meeting today. About eight people carrying a large banner demanded the council call for a ceasefire between Israel and Gaza. After a second interruption, the protesters were escorted out of the chambers by City Hall security. Last month, a resolution calling for a ceasefire and another expressing support for Israel were tabled by the council chair. Harvard University officials say they support an investigation into civil rights issues at the school by the U.S. Department of Education. School leaders say they will work with federal investigators to address concerns. The government is investigating claims that Harvard and more than a dozen other schools, including Wellesley College, violated civil rights by failing failing to address anti-Semitism on campus. The YMCA of Greater Boston will house in its buildings migrant families in need of emergency shelter during the cold winter months. The nonprofit will provide space during daytime hours when shelters are not available for use. This month, the state began housing families in a Boston office building as emergency shelter space has hit capacity. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. Celtics are off until Friday. The Bruins are off until tomorrow night. In the forecast, pretty nice day today. Overnight tonight should be clear and dry, about 28 degrees. And that should be the first of a few milder days coming up tomorrow. In the mid-40s tomorrow, mainly sunny. Friday should turn cloudy, but at least it's going to reach the mid-50s. 35 degrees now in Boston at 406. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com And Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR bring you the latest developments on all of these fronts and the context to help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. Keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org and thanks. We hope you will give right now as we start off All Things Considered. We have so many stories coming up for you. Uh, The latest issue and a serious one between the U.S. and India. We're going to be talking about uh, why some uh, polling places run out of ballots. And we're going to be hearing a personal story from an Israeli soldier who was stationed in Gaza for a couple of weeks. Just a few of the many things coming your way that are only possible with your contribution. Here's the number we hope you will call during this end-of-year fund drive, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. Happy to be joined in the studio by Anthony Brooks. Hey, Lisa. Yeah, so All Things Considered is a great reason to call 1-800-909-9287 if you depend on that because you depend on that show every uh, weekday afternoon. WBUR is Boston's home for independent journalism. We want to be here for you for generations to come, but our future is not guaranteed. So we're counting increasingly on the voluntary support of our listeners, listeners like you, to keep our reporting strong, to keep programs like All Things Considered on the air. We can't do it without your financial help. And now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org, or you can give us a call at one 800 909 
1-800-227-9287. When NPR first came on the air, a set of principles guided our work. NPR will serve the individual, promote personal growth, regard differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. NPR will provide listeners with an experience that enriches and gives meaning to the human spirit. NPR will explore, investigate, and try to interpret issues of the day so listeners might better understand themselves, as well as governments, institutions, our world. NPR will be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, and increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society. NPR will be a service to listeners that makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and responsible citizens of their communities and the world. And that's still our purpose, work we do with you and for you, and we can only do it with your support. So please donate to the station today. So many reasons to donate, and especially we want to let you know, if you don't, that more than half of our funding comes from you, our listeners. We're so grateful for anybody who has called so far. If you haven't, please do it right now. We are lucky enough to have some foundations that support us, uh, to have some uh, uh, local businesses that support us. The reality is some of that has been dipping since the pandemic, some of that funding. We rely on you now more than ever for our operating budget. So here's the number. We hope you will hear our call, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. WBUR really is driven by the belief that independent journalism has a critical role in our lives, in our communities, in our democracy, to be to be perfectly honest. And we're fueled by the support that listeners give us because they want to make a meaningful difference. So now is the time to join them. If you can do it, you can make a tax-deductible year-end contribution by giving us a call at 1-800-909-9287. You can also do it at WBUR.org. You know, Anthony, there is, uh, as we said, many incentives, and one of them is this Raglan baseball shirt. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's quite lovely. I'm looking at a picture. It's yes. cool. It's gray with white letters. The letters say, not surprisingly, WBUR oh. across the chest, wow. and blue uh, three-quarter <laughs> length. Uh, uh, <laughs> sleeves uh, in the uh, baseball shirt tradition. It's a smart shirt. It says Boston's NPR WBUR on it. Um, so yeah, and that goes to help me out here as our pledge for twelve dollars per month. Twelve dollars per month, uh, and that's just one of the many things you get when you listen to WBUR. Just an incentive. We know that you don't necessarily give because you're going to get. Um, this very nice uh, baseball cool shirt perk. out of it. A, a cool perk. So please make your call right now for everything that you've heard today, everything that you're about to hear uh, uh, through the rest of the day on WBUR and through the rest of the week. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The U.S. Justice Department announced charges today against an Indian national for allegedly taking part in a murder-for-hire scheme on American soil, a scheme orchestrated by an Indian government employee. 
The alleged plan was to assassinate an American citizen who is a leader in the Sikh separatist movement. Now, this announcement comes just months after Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, accused India's government of plotting to kill a Canadian citizen who was a Sikh separatist leader. Joining me to discuss this are NPR's Ryan Lucas, who covers the Justice Department. Hey, Ryan. Hi there. And our international affairs correspondent, Jackie Northam. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. Hi. Okay, so Ryan, kick us off. There are a lot of strange parts to <laughs> to what I just described. We know this was announced today in New York, the mm-hmm. case. We know one person has been charged. What do we know about that person who's been charged and who the target was? Well, the defendant is a 52-year-old Indian national by the name of Nikhil Gupta. Uh, court papers say he was previously involved with international drugs and weapons trafficking, uh, and prosecutors say he played a leading role putting together this alleged murder-for-hire scheme. But he is the only one who's been charged. Mm -hmm. And the really interesting thing here is that the indictment says the plot as a whole was directed by someone else, by an Indian government employee described in the the indictment as a senior field officer with intelligence responsibilities. That, of course, suggests the possible hand here of the Indian government. Uh, And the goal of this alleged plot was to murder, as you said, a Sikh activist in New York City. The activist is not named in the indictment, but we've learned that it was Gurpatwant Singh Panoon. He's the general counsel for Sikhs for Justice. Uh, Panoon has also confirmed that he was the target, and he called this alleged plot uh, a, quote, blatant case of India's transnational terrorism. And what exactly was was the alleged plot? What was supposed to go down? Well, this whole thing came together pretty quickly earlier this year. Court papers say the Indian government employee recruited Gupta in May to orchestrate this murder. In return, the Indian official offered to get a criminal case in India against Gupta dismissed. But once Gupta was on board, he got to work quickly. Prosecutors say he contacted someone in the criminal underworld uh, for help arranging a hitman in the U.S. to carry out this assassination. The problem was the person that Gupta contacted was, in fact, a confidential source for U.S. law enforcement. Uh That confidential source put Gupta in touch with a hitman, but that purported hitman was, in fact, an undercover DEA officer. The indictment says they ended up talking logistics and price, and ultimately the Indian government employee agreed to to pay uh, $100,000 for the murder. This is a price that was brokered by Gupta. Around this time, the Indian government employee also was passing along details on the target's home address, phone numbers, details on their daily routine. Court papers say Gupta pushed the hitman to carry out this murder as soon as possible. But at the same time, he was making clear that it shouldn't happen during high-level talks between U.S. and Indian officials. Uh, Then in late June, this whole plot was foiled when authorities in the Czech Republic arrested Gupta at the request of the United States. Okay, so as we wrap our heads around all that, Jackie Northam, hop in here. Is this big news in India? Are we hearing any response from authorities there? Yeah, it is. It's big news in India, of course. I mean, India's foreign ministry announced just this morning, as it turns out, just ahead of the news out of the Justice Department, that it had set up a high-level inquiry earlier this month into the incident and that it would take follow-up action if necessary. Now, we haven't heard from New Delhi since on this uh, particular DOJ revelation. You know, the Biden administration put out a statement as well about the incident, and interestingly, it said it would be providing information to India's government to help aid its internal investigation, and that it expects some accountability. And, you know, that's seen as, by some as a rather restrained response to the allegations, you know, of an attempted extrajudicial killing, extrajudicial killing on U.S. soil, especially by a country that the U.S. considers 
a partner, a democratic partner. And, you know, some analysts point out that the contrast between similar events, if, you know, perhaps Russia was involved. Would be a very different reaction, one would expect. So what explains mm -hmm. this restrained response by the U.S.? Because, again, just to underscore, if what the Justice Department says happened actually happened, this was an assassination attempt on an American mm -hmm. inside the U.S., yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the, the restrained response probably or largely is because the Biden administration, you know, it's been over the past few years have been trying to strengthen its uh, security and its diplomatic ties with India as a way to counter China's dominance you know, in the Indo-Pacific region. And, you know, this is, incident could seriously complicate that strategy. The administration knew about this attempted assassination going back to July and several high-level administration officials traveled to India since then to meet with their counterparts about it, including CIA Director William Burns and Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines. You know, even Biden talked to Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi about it, uh, you know, on the sidelines of the G20. You know, and finally today, the Justice Department stepped in. So analysts say this pragmatism, you know, it reflects the administration's desire to strike a balance between its strategic interests, China, uh, with its values, you know, its opposition to extrajudicial killings. Okay, so there have been all these talks, all these meetings at the highest level of the Biden administration with India. Now it's out in the open. We know about it. What happens now? Ryan, you first. Well, on the Justice Department front, as I said a bit earlier, Gupta was arrested in June in the Czech Republic. Um, he's still there and will be as his extradition proceedings play out. And Jackie? Well, as far as diplomacy goes, you know, the strategy of using India as a counterweight to China is important to the Biden administration. But, you know, this incident has clearly tarnished the relationship. And it's hard to see if it will have a long-term damaging effect on that relationship. We'll have to see what the Indian investigation into the incident discovers and whether anyone is held to account. And in a statement today, National Security Council spokesperson uh, Adrian Watson said the government of India was clear with the administration that they were taking the investigation seriously. Okay. Detailed reporting there from NPR's Jackie Northam and Ryan Lucas. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thanks so much. Ballot shortages are a rare occurrence in American elections, but they do happen. That was the case earlier this month in some polling locations in Mississippi and Ohio. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports on why voters may encounter those ballot shortages. Voting rights groups in Mississippi had a network of people monitoring polling sites on Election Day. Things were going smoothly until about midday. We started getting calls about polling locations running out of ballots. That's Haria Tarkin with the Mississippi Center for Justice. She says they were getting calls from Hines County, the state's most populous and a predominantly black county. Some locations had already run out of ballots by the time a poll monitor called us, and some we got calls where, you know, they had 14 ballots left but 100 people in line. Tarkin says there was a scramble to make sure those polling sites got additional ballots. She says in a lot of cases, it took a while, up to two hours, which led to some extremely long lines. We can say for certain that there were individuals who walked away from the lines because of how long they were. It's unclear what caused the ballot shortage in Hines County, but at least one official told local media they didn't think that many people would vote. Local election officials are supposed to order ballots for 60% of active voters, which is required by state law. 
Ballot shortages don't happen often, but they are serious problems when they do. David Becker with the Center for Election Innovation and Research says that's why, for the most part, election officials are really careful when they're trying to figure out how many ballots to print. When counties, especially counties that have to pre-print ballots, have to plan for the next election, it's an inexact science. They're doing this based on past turnout in similar elections, and they want to get it right. This is also true in places that don't need to pre-print ballots. In Texas, many counties have centralized vote centers, which print out individualized ballots once a voter shows up. In 2022, the state's largest county, Harris County, had shortages of blank paper ballots, which resulted in criminal investigations, lawsuits, and the state restructuring how the county's elections are run. As a way to avoid these situations, some states, like Mississippi, have laws in place about how many ballots election officials need to have on hand. But Tammy Patrick with the National Association of Election Officials says those kinds of laws come with their own cost. In those states, um, it's quite frequent that they are recycling volumes and volumes of ballots that go unvoted because the voters don't participate. Patrick says unused ballots could end up costing local officials thousands, even millions of dollars. That's why she says most states don't have rules about how many ballots officials need to print. So figuring it out is left up to some guesswork, a little art and science. Sometimes it, it is absolutely the case where you're trying to read the tea leaves, as it were. So you're, you're paying attention to how much your community is paying attention to the election. So are there a lot of street signs, candidate signs up? Are you getting a lot of phone calls into your office with questions about the election? Have you seen an uptick in voter registration or requests for absentee ballots? Patrick says besides requests for absentee ballots, one of the best indicators of interest in an election ahead of election day is early voting. But of course, that is only if a state has these options for voters. Mississippi, for example, doesn't have early voting or no excuse absentee voting. Election expert David Becker says in states like that, calculating how many ballots you need carries with it a much higher degree of risk. Because all of the voting behavior, almost all of the ballots, are going to be cast on a single day. If you get something wrong, that leaves you very little time to fix it. That puts a lot of pressure on election officials to accurately predict voter turnout, which isn't easy. And Becker says it's often the case that vulnerable communities, which already have fewer resources, are most affected by ballot shortages. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar, with scratch kitchens customizing dishes for guests with allergies or dietary restrictions. Eight locations in Greater Boston, burtonsgrill.com, and Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
A mixed result on Wall Street today. The Dow rose a small fraction of a percent. S&P and Nasdaq both lost ground. S&P fell about a tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq dipped nearly two-tenths of a percent. 68 people in the Cambridge Office of Gene Therapy startup Generation Bio are going to be laid off early next year. That amounts to 40 percent of its workforce. The layoffs include several members of its leadership team. The company says it's making the decision in part to pivot to target therapies beyond its initial focus, of treatment for liver problems. In the forecast, pretty nice day today, overnight tonight. Should be clear, a waning moon up there tonight. Temperatures all the way down to the upper 20s. Tomorrow, a little bit milder than today, as Ben could reach the mid-40s. The rest of the week should be on the milder side as well. 35 in Boston at 424. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. Boston is fortunate to have options when it comes to news sources, but local journalism is in decline. I'm Ari Shapiro. WBUR is doing everything it can to bring you meaningful, nuanced stories from greater Boston. But WBUR can't do its job without your financial support. We need every listener who can give to give a little money every month. Become a member at WBUR.org. So many people listen to WBUR. You might have your favorite show, Morning Edition, Radio Boston, On Point, Here and Now, Fresh Air, whatever it happens to be, all things considered maybe. Um, Whatever it is, we hope that right now you will put a dollar value on that and think for a minute of what it would be like to not have that as part of your day. What would you pay to get it back? Whatever that amount is, say on a monthly basis, if you you can give uh, $10 a month, $12 a month, some people need to do $100 a month, we would so appreciate appreciate that. If you want to make a one-time gift, that's great too. We're just hoping that you will do your part and become a sustaining listener, a contributing listener beyond being a listener. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And when you call that number or go to our website to make a contribution, you are joining a community of sustaining listeners. When you support WBUR, you're supporting a valuable source of independent journalism, and you're really helping to build and sustain community, a community of people who recognize the value of independent journalism, especially these days, And uh, you're joining a team of supporters that make the work that we do possible. Our CEO, Margaret Lowe, talked with Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy about why listener support generally and your support specifically is so important. WBUR and NPR will always be free. We're a public service. And this is especially relevant today because we now live in a world where only people who can afford a subscription have access to many of the most credible, high-quality news sources. And in my mind, that further divides the haves and have-nots. And in contrast, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. Sustaining members provide the support we need to make that possible and to ensure that we're here today and tomorrow and for generations to come to cover the most consequential issues of our time and to make Boston an even better place to live. 
Margaret Lowe mentioned there sustaining listeners. Uh, those are the listeners who give on a monthly basis. Not everybody can afford that, but if you can, please do it right now because, as Margaret said, it holds us over some of the downtimes. And if you have a downtime on your own, you can change the amount that you give to WBOR on a monthly basis. Um, if you can swing it, $15 a month would be wonderful. $20 a month, if some people can do 50 or $100, that would be great. And, uh, and whatever you give, you are contributing to this station. Listener support is the biggest share of the funding that brings you all of this coverage. one 800 909 9287wbur.org. We are grateful for anything that you can uh, pledge, and we understand if you can't pledge, that's okay. We've got other folks that will pick up the slack, but every dollar uh, makes a difference. And we've got some ways to say thank you. Uh, for a pledge of $12 a month, we can send you a WBUR uh, three-quarter sleeve baseball shirt as our thanks. And we've got one here in the studio. It's pretty sharp, right, Lisa? I think it's going to look great on you. <laughs> yeah, so the shirt is gray with three-quarter uh, three length uh, navy blue sleeves, and it proudly displays WBUR on the chest, uh, 90.9. Classic baseball shirt. I'm told it has a modern fit. Lisa, I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> but anyway, what better? A baseball shirt as winter starts. I think it I like means order idea. a size up. I see. That's yeah. it. you got to size up. But, but as, it, winter, as winter weather approaches, nice to sort of keep our keep our uh, mind on spring and baseball. So that's $12 a $12 a month. Yeah. A month. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And it uh, goes up to $20 a month after 7 o'clock tonight. So uh, it's a deal ah. right now. And take advantage of that. <laughs> 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. What you're paying for is everything that you get on WBUR. From everything that you hear on the air to what you get at WBUR.org on the website itself, um, what you get in our great newsletters that are so popular, the programs you hear at City Space. We hope you attend City Space events. If you haven't yet, they're really terrific and such a wide variety of uh, presentations there. Um, what you get from Cognoscenti, our, our um, ideas and opinion page, uh, from The Common, or all of our podcasts, in fact. This is this is just a, a, one of the ways we've been able to grow because of your contributions in the past. We hope you take, take advantage of each one of those. Um, we don't take your contribution for granted, though, so please know how much we appreciate it and how well we put your money to use. You can get right back what you put into this station. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR. And when you do that, you are fueling the work on so many different platforms. City Space, WBUR.org, All Things Considered, Morning Edition, Radio Boston, Here and Now. It goes on and on. When you support WBUR, you fuel the work that we do. So now's the time to make that contribution at WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Olin College of Engineering, ranked number two for best classroom experience and top internship placements by the Princeton Review. Olin.edu.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Hamas is expected to release as many as 16 hostages today. The Israeli military says the first two, who are Russian-Israeli citizens, are already out and were transferred to Egypt. For its part, Israel is expected to free another 30 Palestinians. The temporary ceasefire is set to expire tomorrow, though international mediators are working to extend the truce to allow for more hostages to be released. Meanwhile, anti-Semitism is rising in the U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the highest-ranking Jewish elected official in the U.S., said today on the Senate floor, the hatred has to stop. To us, the Jewish people, the rise of anti-Semitism is a crisis, a five-alarm fire that must be extinguished. He also condemned any hate speech or actions against Arab Americans and Muslims across the U.S. The deputy attorney general says stamping out sexual misconduct in U.S. prisons represents a top priority at the Justice Department. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. The Justice Department has brought eight cases against former employees at the federal prison in Dublin, California, who assaulted women at the prison. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco says those assaults are an abuse of power and corrosive to the rule of law. Monaco says authorities have installed 700 more cameras in prisons designed for women, and they've hired more agents to investigate sexual assaults there. They've also created new ways for assault victims to report their abusers. She spoke at a ceremony in Washington to mark the 20th anniversary of a federal law designed to eliminate rape and assault in prisons. Carrie Johnson, NPR News. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow up 13, Nasdaq down 23. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says she wants peace between Israel and Gaza, but she stopped short of calling for a permanent ceasefire. Instead, Warren is urging a political solution for the two sides. WBUR's Amanda Beland has more. Senator Warren reiterated to WBUR's Radio Boston that she thinks Israel should stop bombing Gaza. That does not mean that Israel has no tools available to defend itself. It does not mean that Israel cannot pursue Hamas. But it does mean that Israel has to have, in all of its actions, a concern for civilian life. That is necessary under international law, and it is a part of domestic law here in the United States, and part of our values. Warren also said Israel needs a leader who will work toward a two-state solution. And Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has made clear he is not that leader. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. Boston officials say the city is ready for winter, whatever that may bring. Boston Public Works Department has stockpiled more than 40,000 pounds of road salt. It also has about 1,000 trucks and plows ready to clear the street after any storm. At a news conference today, Mayor Michelle Wu asked people to help their friends and neighbors out this winter. We know that getting through the winter here is a community effort, and we have the strongest community here in Boston, one that supports one another. From helping shovel snow and dig out cars to checking on our neighbors, I am so proud and grateful for all of the community that we see year-round. Federal forecasters say it could be an especially snowy season due to El Nino, a weather pattern that increases moisture in the winter air. Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Justice David Lowy is retiring. 
He informed Governor Maura Healey that he will step down on February 3rd. UMass President Marty Meehan says he will be the university system's next general counsel. Says Lowy will be the university system's next general counsel. This is WBUR, and the forecast should have clear... Uh, skies tonight on the dry side, temperatures about 28 for a low. And then for tomorrow, mostly sunny skies could make it all the way up to the mid-40s. 35 now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On this program, we have shared stories of Palestinians in Gaza under Israeli bombardment. But what's it like to be an Israeli soldier on the ground there? These next few minutes, we will get one perspective from a young Israeli soldier who recently spent two weeks in Gaza and a support role for his commando unit. NPR's Daniel Estrin met him on a short weekend furlough before he headed back to Gaza. My name is Alon, Alon Keren. I'm uh, almost 22 years old, and I was uh, like two weeks in Gaza. Alon Keren sits in his backyard in a tony suburban neighborhood of Herzliya, north of Tel Aviv. We're surrounded by a manicured hedge and citrus trees heavy with fruit. He spent two weeks in Gaza and arrived home the morning before we met. First thing was the laundry, good showers, good food, Good sleep, good friends. And he has to report back to his base the following morning. In Israel, army service in the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, is mandatory for most 18-year-olds. He finished his service a few months ago, but was called up as a reservist when the war began last month. He's serving in a support role, ferreting in supplies for the 20 combat soldiers in his commando unit. Someone had to do it, and uh, it's a small job. But in the end, it helps. Every 48 hours, he drives back into Israel with equipment to repair. Damaged weapons, drones that malfunctioned, or that soldiers accidentally shot out of the sky. Even the the IDF soldiers, the other IDF soldiers, think this is uh, drones of, of Hamas, and so they shoot it. When he's across the border in Israel? We can take a shower and connect to the phones. So, like, we can communicate with our parents and friends, tell them that we are all right, and then we go back. They leave their phones behind and drive back into Gaza with supplies for the troops. Food, water, hand sanitizer, wet wipes, beef jerky. Yeah, candies, chocolate, uh, they get sometimes, snacks. Sometimes he drives soldiers to their missions, which he described as raids. Sometimes he's evacuated lightly wounded soldiers from shrapnel. Scores of soldiers have been killed in Gaza. He is not in combat. The days uh, for me are pretty simple. I don't, uh, it's not like uh, a routine for me. We, we wake up, we drink the coffee, we can see the beach and it's nice. Have you seen any, any of the Palestinians? No, no, not one. Israel has ordered Palestinians to evacuate northern Gaza where the troops are, though some have stayed. 
His unit slept in an abandoned home in sleeping bags on the floor with the sound of bombings and tanks outside. A little bit hard to sleep because of the noise, so you need like to be almost the whole time with earplugs. An Israeli stand-up comic and Instagram star was sent to entertain the troops and their friends watching back home. Alon Karen appears in the background of this video when he was on one of his breaks across the border in Israel. He shows me a picture of the soldiers in his unit hanging out in Gaza on the Mediterranean shore at sunset. Like the water is, is, is here. And that area is very safe. So you, you don't feel the war. You, ver you feel that the IDF, this is his place. So it's not, it's not Gaza anymore. Gaza is no longer what it was before the war. The extent of the destruction is hard to fathom. The deaths have been catastrophic. The vast majority of the population has been displaced, scrounging for food, water, safe shelter. A completely different experience from that of this soldier, who admits he doesn't have a real sense of the bigger picture of where the war is going. You, you can't understand the big picture, so for me it's feel uh, right to be, to take part. It's not, it's not fun for us. It's not fun uh, for no one, but we have to do it to protect our civilians and to, to make sure they can live in their cities safe. His girlfriend, Noam Segal, who's almost 21, is here listening to his stories along with me. I asked her about Palestinians enduring the war in Gaza, who are not part of Hamas. From what I heard, that there is some, also people that are not part of this organization, but support what this organization do, and it's to kill us. So I cannot be like sorry for them, but I, yeah, I'm sorry for people that are not part of it and just live there and, and need to suffer this. But I'm also, I, I need to think first of, of my people. It's personal for them. They know three kids around their age who were taken hostage in Gaza, including this soldier's neighbor a few houses away. Their moms are friends. It feels very weird that because of Gaza Strip is very small. When I'm in Gaza Strip, I, I said to myself, uh, so like there is 200 and like 250 civ Israeli civilians probably very close to me. Later that night after we met, one of their friends was released from captivity and left Gaza, while the next morning, this soldier went back to Gaza in uniform. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Herzliya, Israel. Testing for COVID-19 may not be as popular as it was at the height of the pandemic, but the Biden administration is trying to get schools back into it. Today, federal health officials announced schools across the country will soon be able to order rapid tests for free. NPR's Will Stone has more. Millions of rapid tests are expected to flow from the federal stockpile to school districts starting next month. Don O'Connell leads the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response, which is spearheading the new testing initiative with schools. We really would like to see these tests uh, move into communities, especially as we hit this fall and winter uh, season where it passed as prologue. We've uh, seen the potential for increased cases. 
In fact, emergency department visits and wastewater data indicate that COVID cases are already climbing in the U.S. Any of the 19,000 school districts in the country will be able to order free tests. O'Connell says they believe there's still plenty of interest in doing testing at schools. They'll let each district decide on its own how to use the tests and who gets them. I can imagine a situation where a student in one of the classes has COVID and a teacher sends everybody home with a COVID test in their backpack. The federal government is trying to make rapid tests more widely available heading into the winter. About 4 million tests are being delivered to long-term care facilities, community health centers and food banks each week. Each U.S. household can also now order four free tests at home by going to covid.gov tests. We don't want uh, anyone's ability to pay for the test to be an obstacle. We want to make sure people have access to what they need. The virus continues to evolve and spin off new variants, but Nate Hafer says these rapid tests are still holding up well. While the testing continues to show that these tests are able to detect the variants that are circulating out in the world today. Hafer is an associate professor of molecular medicine at UMass Chan Medical School. He says, remember, the tests work best when people already have symptoms. And even if someone is infected, it may not pick that up early in the infection. So when in doubt, test again. Testing multiple times is really the, the best way to be most sure. The free tests will be available for school districts to order starting early next month. Will Stone, NPR News. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I believe real journalism is essential to our daily life and our collective future. I believe public radio is one of the last great hopes for journalism in our country. If you believe these things too, then I'm asking you to start a monthly contribution to WBUR. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, maybe just 10 to $15 a month. It'll go a long way to protect one of life's essentials. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is 90.9 WBUR. We hope that you will make that phone call right now because our end-of-year fun drive is underway. We can only bring you stories like the ones that you just heard a few minutes ago about COVID-19 tests being made available for schools. The interview that you heard uh, from Daniel Estrin with a soldier who was stationed in Gaza, the Israeli soldier, first-person, up-close interview this is the kind of thing that you count on us to bring you news with credibility, news from people who have access to those who can tell these stories, be they first-person stories or stories from officials. Um, and, and we know that that's what you've come to expect. So please pay for it during times like right now because we don't have commercials. What we do have is you, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins here with Anthony Brooks. Hey, Lisa. So WBUR's independent journalism plays a hugely important role in your community. And, and, and we can say more about that. It's really essential to our democracy. And your support, listener support, is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. So as you consider what organizations you might want to 
make contributions uh, toward uh, to toward the end of this year. Um, we hope you'll consider WBUR. Put WBUR on your list and give now. Become a monthly sustainer at WBUR.org or give us a call at 1-800-909-9287 because as we keep saying, your support is really what makes this uh, public radio enterprise possible. We just don't exist without it. So we're asking you right now at this crucial time of the year uh, to give us uh, a hand at 1-800-909-9287. Please make the phone call right now. We hope you will, uh, because really we do rely on you for the majority of our operating budget, and we don't expect any one person to make the phone call. We are hoping that, uh, or to, we do expect you one person to make the phone call. We don't expect you to make up our entire amount of um, of the money that we need to end this fundraise raiser successfully, but we're hoping that you will help us do it. Um, just want to talk a little bit about how uh, certain shows such as Radio Boston have found unique ways to cover what's going on between Israel and Hamas. Uh, Radio Boston found um, Guy Ben-Haron, who's an Israeli-American, and Dr. Iman Asari, a Palestinian-American. Their friendship has grown even stronger as the heartbreak in their homeland grows. Tiziana Deering, the host of Radio Boston, said it took a lot of courage for Dr. Ansari to come on our air and talk at a time when many from the Palestinian community didn't feel safe doing so. We recognized that it was an act of courage for Iman to come on air. And we wanted people to understand what it felt like to be her and what people in her Palestinian-American community here were experiencing. If you're asking specifically within the Palestinian community, I feel we have similar feelings to anyone watching what's happening and anyone in the Jewish or the Israeli community. Like, the emotions are shared. Pain, um, hurt, um, maybe anger in some of the people. But the most predominant feeling is a ton of fear. Everyone is scared. Everyone is horrified. Everyone, as soon as the topic is open, they burst into tears. Journalism is about telling the whole story. And so the whole story is not just what's happening to people, but also their hopes, their fears, how they're internalizing it, what they're talking about and thinking about when they go home at the dinner table at night. And if you don't ask people, how are you feeling right now? You really can miss the intimacies of life's experience that really round out who we are. This is the work that we're asking you to support, the journalism, the stories that your contributions, listener contributions, make possible. So please, right now, make your year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Think about all the stories that we do cover. We've been hearing a lot uh, these days from... uh, WBUR from NPR, from the BBC, uh, covering the Israeli-Hamas war. We've been talking a lot about the release of hostages. We're going to be covering the, cur- the the coming presidential election. Hard to believe, Lisa, the New Hampshire primary less than nine weeks away. Can and you believe that? Can you believe that? Nope. Nine weeks away? Nope. So these are big stories. They matter. We can't bring them to you without your support. That's what we're asking you to support right now at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Vice President Kamala Harris is headed to the International Climate Summit known as COP28 in Dubai this weekend. The White House says President Joe Biden asked Harris to go to emphasize the importance of the conference and to showcase U.S. leadership on climate at home and abroad. But young people in particular have been pushing Biden to do more when it comes to climate. They have been calling for Biden himself to attend the global meeting here to talk about the politics around all of this is NPR national political correspondent Mara Liason. Hey, Mara. Hi, Juana. So, Mara, why is the question of who will attend the summit so significant? Well, first of all, the purpose of the summit is to see if these big fossil fuel consuming countries can meet their promises to keep the Earth from warming more than 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Politically, who goes for the United States is important because this is an example of the difficulty Biden has had with young voters. Young people care very deeply about climate, about the the state of the earth that they're going to inherit. And the White House was feeling the pressure. A source familiar with the plans to send the vice president told our colleague Deepa Shivaram that that pressure made them decide to send Vice President Harris. So climate was a big part of Biden's campaign for president in 2020. He's taken some big actions related to climate change since then. He's in Colorado today actually talking about wind power. The Inflation Reduction Act that he signed put huge investments into climate policy, $370 billion. He doesn't get a whole lot of credit for that. But young voters want him to do more. They want him to solve problems, and not just on climate. They want the high cost of housing address. They want the Israeli-Hamas war to be ended. They want student loan forgiveness. And they're frustrated that Biden can't do more. I want to stick with the war here for a second, because that is an area that has been another really big disconnect between the administration and young voters, right? Absolutely. The war in the Middle East is a motivating issue for young voters, young people right now. This is one place where Biden and young people pushing for an end to Israel's military actions are actually at odds. On climate, they agree. They just think Biden should be doing more. The Middle East is where there is a real policy difference between young voters, between voters of color, very important parts of the Democratic base, and the Biden administration. Whether this issue will hurt Biden next year depends on how long the Hamas-Israeli war lasts. But right now it's showing some deep rifts inside the Democratic Party, which could be a real problem for Biden. Now, climate is not going away. It's going to be an issue now. It's going to be an issue next year. We'll have to see how big of an impact it has on motivating young people to either vote for Biden, stay home, or find a third-party alternative. Okay, back to the summit. Vice President Harris is going to go. What has her role been in engaging with these young voters that the administration needs? The White House has used her as an ambassador to young voters, to the Democratic base on a whole lot of issues. She's gone on the road. She's talked on college campuses about climate change, about abortion, about gun laws. It hasn't all been smooth for her. At one of her last stops, protesters were shouting about the administration's approach to Gaza. But it's just not clear if Harris is going to be the person to galvanize the youth vote. 
I mean, young people were a huge part of the Biden coalition in 2020, as you know. Well, what does it mean in 2024 if they do not show up and vote? It means there's a huge problem for Joe Biden. This is really important. He is not at risk of losing young voters to Trump. He's at risk of young voters not being enthusiastic. This is going to be a close election, a turnout election. Biden needs every single base Democratic voter to show up at the polls. We know from polling that Republicans are already more enthusiastic about voting in 2024 than Democrats are. So Biden can't afford any apathy among his supporters. And, you know, having a voter who stays home or votes for a third party is really the same thing as losing a vote to Trump because the person who gets a plurality of votes in states is the one who wins all the electors. That's our system. It's not a popular vote system. That's why turnout and enthusiasm really matters. NPR national political correspondent Mara Eliasson, thank you as always. You're welcome. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. Climate change dominated the headlines this year. Wildfires stoked by Hurricane Dora spread across the island of Maui. A dangerously large plume of moisture known as an atmospheric river slams into the region. But there were also stories of hope. This hotline helps people figure out how to save important objects and buildings after disasters. Invest in the future of climate change coverage on NPR and this station. Here's how. Here's how by calling 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We have made such a commitment to covering climate change on all of our programs, and this is something that, uh, that Here and Now is doing as well on a national level. Peter O'Dowd has been uh, helping find solutions, little solutions that people can make on their own to make a difference, things that actually do have impact. So we're hoping right now, because we are so attuned to the issues that we know many of you are attuned to as well, that you will pledge support to keep this coverage coming. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. It's it's a really great example of the kind of work we do when you call uh, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. This is the work that you're supporting. Here's another example. Uh, Our uh, climate change and environmental reporter, Miriam Wasser, who's done a a lot of coverage of this issue. Hi, I'm WBUR environmental reporter Miriam Wasser. So Sam Woodman is a young climate activist and she told the story of what happened during the big nor'easter of 2018 when the street she lived on in Revere just flooded really severely. You can see the ocean from Pearl Avenue so it's really pretty It's kind of like this quintessential small town street, even though it's in the middle of Revere. And I remember Sam pointing to this one spot that was maybe 15 feet away from her house. And she said, this is where the water comes up to. This is where we all know that if there's a storm coming, we do not park our cars below this point. So when the nor'easter hit, nobody parked there. Everybody parked much farther up the street but the waters came up in a way that they had never seen before, and that's how they all got in trouble. There was a a neighbor across the street who had been there for decades, and she told me a story about what happened during the storm, that the water came up into their backyard, 
they're used to the backyard flooding, right? But when the big storm came, the water just came pouring into their basement. We evacuated. We actually evacuated. The water was up to my husband in the middle of his chest in the basement. But I was just really touched by how tight-knit this community was and how attached everyone was to this specific street. This is a working class neighborhood and climate change is going to disproportionately affect those who can least afford to protect themselves. And this story tells us that. We hear so much about climate change and sea level rise in Massachusetts. And here's a story of where it's, it's impacting people. These are the stories that we need to hear and these are the stories that we need to tell so that we can really think about how we're gonna tackle this. These are amazing stories that reporters like Miriam Wasser tell because they go right where the news is happening and talk to the people who are personally affected, in this case, by climate change in their own backyards. So support that. Help Miriam and other reporters um, bring you the stories that help us truly understand the effects of climate change. The, re the reporting that you hear doesn't happen without your support. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, and, and keep in mind that your support is crucial to this kind of reporting. Listener support is really what keeps WBUR afloat. It's what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. So as you consider tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that are making a positive difference in your life and community, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. We are counting on you. Please be as generous as you can. If you can afford a pledge, please make a monthly one if you can swing that. 1-800-909-9287. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the Center for Audit Quality, committed to enhancing public trust in the economy through assurance. Auditors are serving investors, small businesses, and working Americans. Learn more at thecaq.org. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Israeli military says Hamas released a total of 16 hostages today while negotiations continue to extend the pause in fighting. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading back to the Middle East to try to build on the deal that allowed the releases. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Secretary Blinken says one of his goals of his planned meetings in Israel and the occupied West Bank is to focus on the near term, that is extending the current pause in fighting, which has allowed some hostages to get out of Gaza and much needed aid to get in. So its continuation, by definition, means that more hostages would be coming home, more assistance 
uh, would be getting in. So clearly, that's something we want, uh, and I believe it's also something that, uh, that Israel wants. Blinken says the U.S. also wants to help Israel make sure that the October 7th Hamas attack can never happen again. One component of that, he says, is a durable peace and a Palestinian state. The U.S. does not want to see Israel reoccupy Gaza. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, traveling with the secretary in Skopje. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter was laid to rest in her hometown of Plains, Georgia today. Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting has more. Rosalind Carter's funeral was held at her church, Maranatha Baptist Church, not far from the family home in Plains. After the funeral, there was a procession where people mostly from Plains and nearby Americas lined the route. Angela Foster once worked for Carter and her foundation devoted to supporting caregivers and came to the former Plains High School to leave her written condolences. Foster says Carter's kindness and compassion were legendary. If everybody would have that compassion and love for each other, the world would be such a better place. Mrs. Carter's husband, former President Jimmy Carter, attended the funeral, just as he did an earlier memorial service in Atlanta. From NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Plains, Georgia. Global climate negotiations begin in Dubai tomorrow. Leaders will discuss how far behind the world is on reining in climate change. NPR's Lauren Summer explains what the U.S. could look like if countries don't change course. World leaders have set a goal to limit climate warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Right now, the world is set to hit almost double that amount. If that happens, the U.S. would see big impacts, according to the latest scientific report, the National Climate Assessment. The heaviest rainstorms could drop 40% more rain in some parts of the country, raising the risk of flooding. The southern U.S. could see a month more of days above 95 degrees. And winters would get warmer in the mountain west, shrinking the snowpack. Lauren Summer, NPR News. The White House announced today that Vice President Kamala Harris will attend the conference for the U.S., this is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The YMCA of Greater Boston will use its buildings to house migrant families in need of emergency shelter during the cold winter days. The nonprofit will provide space during daytime hours when overnight shelters are closed. This month, Massachusetts began to house families in the State Transportation Building in Boston after emergency shelter space hit capacity. About 10,000 children in the state's family shelter system will soon get warm winter clothing. The Healy administration is partnering with several nonprofits to donate coats, hats, gloves, and educational materials to kids 12 and under. Volunteers will pack the supplies, and the National Guard will help distribute them. And two New England Patriots are among the 25 semifinalists for the 2024 Pro Football Hall of Fame. Rodney Harrison was a semifinalist in both 20 and 23, and Vince Wilfork has reached the stage each of the past three years. In the forecast, 33 degrees now should fall to the upper 20s overnight tonight, clear skies. Tomorrow, a little bit milder than today has been, should reach the mid-40s with sunshine through the day. This is WBUR. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. Celtics are off until Friday. Bruins get another night to recover from three straight losses. They host the Sharks tomorrow. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go.
I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Please help keep local journalism strong. Independent journalism, that is what you get here at WBUR. We don't have commercials, so we don't respond to commercial interests. We respond to you. So we hope you will recognize your huge role in WBUR as a listener and also as a contributor. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with reporter Anthony Brooks. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, and I think uh, Tiziana put it really well, the the important uh, role that local journalism has, especially at a time when local uh, journalism across much of the country um, is eroding. But here in Boston, we've got a number of news outlets, including WBUR. But here's the thing. We can't do it without you. You have a critical role uh, in uh, sustaining WBUR, and WBUR has a critical role in our lives, our communities, and our democracy. So we want to ask you to support it. And now's the time to do that, to make a tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org, or give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention, and I care deeply about it, and I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. And we hope you understand that you can have a voice when you call 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. How many times has somebody sent you a link to a great article um, from, uh, from a news source and you can't open it because there's a paywall and that is so frustrating. It happens to us all the time. Please understand, you're not going to hit a paywall at WBUR. There is no kind of membership that will exclude you from anything that we provide online, podcasts, on air, of course. And so we hope that you appreciate that because the fact is we don't make income that way. We make it through voluntary contributions. So right now we hope you will make yours 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, I mean, that's really the key point. Your support is what keeps us independent. We're not beholden to commercial sponsors. We're not beholden to some huge parent company with, with other financial interests that might span the country or the globe. Our sole purpose uh, is to focus on the journalism that uh, we think adds an important 
element uh, to sustaining our, our democracy. And you're the key, you're the linchpin in, in, in bringing that journalism forward because you support it uh, with your financial support. We just can't do it without you. So give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. This is a great time to think about <clears throat> end-of-year support for those organizations that may make a difference in, in, in your life, that enrich your communities. Um, we hope that you put WBUR on that list and go to WBUR.org and make a monthly pledge or give at 1-800-909-9287. We've got some great stories coming up, including a, a conversation about life expectancy in the U.S. It's actually good news and a little bit of bad news. It's starting to recover after it dropped during the pandemic, but still it lags behind pre-pandemic times. And we'll have a conversation about a mother in Gaza who spoke with NPR at the start of the war, told us about her fears. She eventually was killed with her children and husband by an Israeli airstrike on a residential tower where they were taking shelter. You have uh, all views represented here at WBUR, and we hope you appreciate the effort that the reporters, producers take to get these um, um, people to speak about their own experiences. We heard um, from an Israeli soldier in the last hour. You can hear all of our coverage at WBUR.org. Please pay for it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. U.S. life expectancy is starting to bounce back after taking a serious dip during the peak of the pandemic. New data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says in 2022, the average expected lifespan was 77 and a half years old. And Pierce Ping Huang is here in the studio to put that number into context. Hey, Ping. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, so 77 and a half, which I guess is better than it was when COVID was doing its worst, but how does it compare to before the pandemic? Well, it's worse than it was before the pandemic. Okay. Um, if we rewind back to 2019, those pre-COVID times, U.S. life expectancy at that point was nearly 80 years old. So in the first two years of the pandemic, life expectancy dropped by almost two and a half years, largely because of COVID deaths. And last year, health experts say that um, because of the impacts of vaccines and treatments, fewer people died from COVID. So the good news is that U.S. life expectancy has started to rise again, but it's not great. I mean, some researchers that I talked with actually called the numbers sad and bleak. Basically, 77 and a half years, that's the same life expectancy that the U.S. had in 2003. And that's kind of like 20 years of lost progress. 20 years of lost progress. So why? Is COVID still at least partly to blame? Yeah. I mean, some of it is that people are still dying of COVID. It's still uh, it's, it's now the fourth leading cause of death. And another part of it is that the U.S. continues to see a lot of early deaths from causes that have been around for a long time. Here's Elizabeth Arias, a, demog a demographer with the CDC. The main causes of death are pretty stable. So, for instance, heart disease has been the leading cause of death for a long time, uh, followed by cancer. The third cause right now is unintentional injuries, which includes car accidents and drownings and drug overdoses, which has been a huge growing source of deaths in the past few years. 
Other leading causes include stroke, Alzheimer's, and diabetes. And the U.S. also has high rates of maternal mortality and infant mortality compared with other wealthy countries. So all of these are causing early deaths in the U.S., and it's driving life expectancy down. Um, You just mentioned other wealthy countries. How does the U.S. compare to them? Um, Not well. Um, So in other wealthy countries in Europe and in Asia, the average life expectancy is well over 80 years old. Here's Eileen Crimmins, a gerontologist at University of Southern California. We are terrible. We're the absolute lowest. We've been dropping relative to everyone else for years. So Crimin says that the gap between the U.S. and these other wealthy countries, it's been growing since the 1980s and it hasn't stopped. And I'll point out the obvious that other wealthy countries also had COVID and suffered through the pandemic. Why is mm-hmm. there this huge gap? Well, Kremen says that it's because other wealthy countries are better at keeping people from dying early from things like heart disease, gun violence, complications around giving birth, vaccine-preventable diseases. The silver lining here is that she says we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can learn from what other countries have done. You know, they've made basic health care accessible to people. They've provided better care and support around childbirth. They've passed stricter gun laws. So she and others say that they hope these numbers are a wake-up call for the public and for policymakers to change things for the better and to reduce the amount of early preventable deaths here in the U.S. Thank you, Peng. You're welcome. And PR health correspondent, Peng Huang. Now for the story of one woman in the Gaza Strip. For a sixth day, fighting has paused there. Hamas has released hostages 16 today as Israel releases Palestinian detainees. Israel says it's fighting Hamas, which killed 1,200 people on October 7th. But people living in Gaza, where officials say over 13,000 have died, say it feels to them like a war against Palestinian civilians. NPR's Aya Batrawi kept in touch with a mother in Gaza as she tried to keep her family safe and alive. You know, in Gaza, seconds, seconds between life and death. You can't expect when, how long will you live. That's Iman Abu Said, an architect, social worker, and a Palestinian mother of two. She was still in her home in Gaza City when I called her on October 9th. She's one of the people I'd been introduced to over the phone as I was searching for people to talk to in the Gaza Strip about life during this war. But already, life as she knew it had changed. Um, My sister was calling me right now. She called me to bring her, send her some clothes for her kids. Abu Said comes from a family of 11 siblings. She told me one of her sisters was displaced and needed to borrow clothes from her children, Judy, 12, and Ziad, 11. I couldn't explain it. I couldn't explain the situation. And now that's it's catastrophic. And, you know, there are things that happen in war in Gaza that you can't know from news. You need to live them to understand, to understand them. Like how hard it is to protect your children from the horrors of war and the smell of death and bombs all around. Her kids were terrified of the buzzing of Israeli aircraft and the crashing boom of airstrikes, the bombardment from Israeli naval ships off the coast. From the sea, from the air, from everywhere. Many of the buildings surrounding us have been bombed by F-16. So, you know, you don't, we're trying to escape, but we don't know where to go. Just two days into the war, the building next to hers had already been hit by a bomb. We woke up with the dust bombing on our faces and bodies and smelling 
of gunpowder and dirt. My kids crying and shouting all the day because of the bombing from the F-16 uh, war airplanes from the Israeli occupation. And we feel helpless, afraid. Israel blames civilian deaths on Hamas, saying it operates in civilian areas by using people for cover. But Abu Said rejects this argument and says Israel's actions against Gaza go much further, including a 16-year blockade since Hamas took over. Her children never had a chance to see life outside Gaza. We didn't see anything outside Gaza except kills, murder, electricity off, no food. What about our civilians and our children and kids in Gaza Strip? What about them? Do you uh, wait for the Gazans to fight for their rights and to, to, to get back their rights to live in dignity? It's the simplest uh, requirements of our kids and our people here in Gaza. They need to, to move freely. They need to, to, to have adequate uh, services, water, electricity, as anyone in the world. That's it. She listed all the wars and conflicts her children had already survived. 2014, 2021, 2022, 2023, aggression in Gaza, yes. She told me about specific scenes of death in Gaza during this war, of mothers and children being pulled out of the rubble as ashlet, Arabic for body parts. She didn't want her kids to see that. Um, kids are um, dead. Mother's kids, dead. they are just full of dust. They are like ashla, yani. They are, yes, it's, it's a horrible, a horrible, horrible uh, things to see here in Gaza. And I try, I try to make the, my kids safe. She ended up moving with her kids and her husband to her parents' home in an area Israel told people to flee to. Then, on October 31st, airstrikes destroyed the five-story building according to witnesses. Abu Said and her family were killed. Iman Abu Said was pulled from the rubble in body parts, just like the scenes she'd been trying to shield her children from. Her two children, Judy and Ziad, and her husband, Iyad, also died. In all, 23 members of her family died in that attack, including her parents, five siblings, other relatives, and 12 children in total from the family. Her brother, Mohammed Abu Said in the UK, confirmed the details of her death and how hard it's been. You know, Iman is, uh, is, is a very kind person. Oh my God, she's, she, she has this really big heart. But we never expected that the whole building will be flattened. This, this is something we never expected, never, never came to my mind. Um, mentally, it's very, very damaging. Uh, I don't know, 10 years I was praying that to Allah just, you know, to, to reunite us with my family and uh, but this, this will never happen. In our conversations, Abu Said had told me that she saw the Hamas attack on Israel as, quote, a very natural response to what Israel had done since 1948. She said she knew Americans wouldn't understand this about an attack that killed women and children and took hostages. <clears throat> Is it only the right for, for Israel, uh, the occupation, to defend themselves? I wanted, what about the Gazans? What about them? What about them? Who will defend them? Just days before her death, 
Iman Abu Said wrote there was no longer internet to call me and that her home that she'd left in Gaza City had been bombed. She said, Gaza is bleeding. Aya Batrawi, NPR News. Readers mourn the loss of the online publication Jezebel earlier this month. The women's publication for news and culture shut down after 16 years, but now it's getting a second life. Georgia-based music and entertainment magazine Paste acquired Jezebel yesterday. Paste editor-in-chief and co-founder Josh Jackson bought Jezebel in a deal that was just finalized. In a statement, Jackson said, quote, Jezebel's unique voice and commitment to storytelling make it a perfect addition to our portfolio. Jezebel's legacy is best described by its original tagline, sex, celebrity, politics with teeth. It was a daring feminist publication that millennial women turned to for political and cultural commentary. We spoke to Jezebel's founder, Anna Holmes, just a few weeks ago when the publication first shut down. It was meaningful to me because it was an expression of my own feminism. No word yet on the next editor-in-chief, but Jackson said Jezebel content will start to go up this week. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com and Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. This is 90.9 WBUR. It was a mixed result on Wall Street today. The Dow rose a small fraction of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both lost ground. Not too much, though. S&P fell about a tenth of a percent. The NASDAQ dipped nearly two-tenths of a percent. A federal appeals court in Manhattan is dismissing a shareholder lawsuit against Boston Beer Company. The suit said the company was overly optimistic about its projection sales for its hard seltzer brand, Truly. Boston Beer's stock price jumped during the hard seltzer boom early in the pandemic, but then dropped off in 2021. Legal experts say this means executives can publicly share optimistic projections without fear of litigation. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Acton Art Drawing School, celebrating 20 years teaching drawing, painting, and manga in Acton, Mass. To kids, teens, and adults, actonart.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Many of our listeners tell us WBUR is essential in their lives. They say WBUR makes the world a better and more informed place. We're the news source they trust most, and we want to be here for the long term. But our future isn't guaranteed. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the best thing you can do to keep this essential service strong. Be our lifeline. Give monthly at WBUR.org. You're definitely a lifeline for us, so if you can pledge $10 a month, we would love that. $15 a month. Some people can do $50 a month. If you can make a one-time pledge, whatever you can afford, we appreciate. And and by the same token, if you can't uh, afford any kind of pledge this time around, we get it. We hope you will continue listening, and then at some point... Uh, uh, give us whatever donation that you think we're worth to you. We are in the midst of our end-of-year fund drive. This is a time many people decide that they want to support the organizations that mean something to them. You listen to WBUR. You go to WBUR.org. Please tell us what that's worth to you. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. 
WBUR. It's always going to be a free public good available to anyone and everyone. But as we heard from Rupa just a moment ago, that long-term sustainability uh, is not guaranteed. We are increasingly reliant upon financial support from listeners like you. So when you give $10, 20 or $30 a month, you're providing a, a more secure future for WBUR. You're helping to create a more informed community in Boston and beyond. So we're asking you to give what you can right now become a monthly sustainer, make uh, Boston a better place for everyone by going to 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Have you ever wondered how you would feel if tomorrow you woke up and public radio was just gone? Oh, man. That would be tough. I think it would be devastating. Well, I would grieve because there would be no replacement for it. We asked listeners around the country that very question. I've been listening to NPR for a long time. So NPR has been a giant part of my life, and I would be devastated if it wasn't there anymore. It would be a very depressing ride to work. I don't know if there's enough cups of coffee in the world that would be able to get me over that. There, there really is nothing else like it. We donate, but there's a lot of people out there that listen that probably don't donate, and I think uh, that's a really great thing to put into perspective is how would you feel? There's an easy way to feel good about public radio and the financial health of your station. Just support it. Really, do it right now. Call or go online. Your tax-deductible contribution will help ensure public radio isn't going anywhere. It'll be here when you turn on your radio tomorrow. And thanks. Easy way to support it. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And if you give now, you enter into a sweepstakes, essentially, to win a trip anywhere in the world. Maybe you've imagined watching the sun dip below a brightly colored, the brightly colored rooftops of a Greek villa. You can go there. You can go to Italy. You can go to France. You can go to Tokyo. No matter what your dream vacation, it's a $10,000 customized trip from CBT Travel. Just by calling and making a contribution, uh, you're going to be entered automatically. That's a pretty sweet deal. Pretty sweet deal. Yeah. And here's so, another deal. Yeah. Uh, a $12 per month pledge just until 7 o'clock and you can pick up a WBUR baseball jersey, which is a pretty cool deal as well. Absolutely, and we hope you'll pay for uh, whatever you listen to on WBUR in addition to being entered into the sweepstakes and possibly getting that WBUR shirt, which is a great baseball shirt. Um, the the story that you heard, the uh, um, parts of an interview that Ava Trowey from NPR did with a woman from Gaza, a mother from Gaza, uh, her conversation happened not long after the fighting took hold in Gaza. And this woman expressed her concerns about her children, what they were going to be witnessing, about their safety, about what they could be seeing. Uh, this woman was eventually killed, as were her children and her husband. Mm. And this is the kind of story that if you hear it elsewhere on the news, you will probably hear it um, from other media outlets in just a few lines or maybe a minute, maybe a minute and a half. With WBUR, we give the stories the amount of time that we think they need to be told in, um, to make a point across, and just to let the person, in this case this mother, have her say, uh, even though she is um, now gone. Uh, so we hope that for this 
And for all the stories that you hear, you appreciate what you get on WBUR, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, I mean, it goes without saying these are tough times in many ways. Uh, WBUR plays a role in uh, bringing these kinds of stories. Uh, We think we do it um, carefully, thoughtfully, uh, with tact. um, And sometimes these are the stories that we have to tell, even if we would rather not be dealing with these kinds of moments. But the journalism plays a huge role. You can help support it by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. Thank you so much for your support, for the hard news stories, for the lighter stories that we're committed to bringing you as well. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include We Need a Vacation, with over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at weneedavacation.com. And Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. An Israeli-American is among the 14 hostages Hamas released today, in addition to two other people released earlier in the day. This as Israel is expected to release 30 Palestinian detainees later. The temporary ceasefire expires tomorrow, but negotiators are working on extending it. President Biden is in Colorado today touting parts of his domestic agenda. He's in Pueblo visiting CS Wind, the world's biggest wind tower manufacturer. The company is expanding with the help of federal tax benefits. When I think climate, and I mean it sincerely, I think jobs, jobs. That's what climate's about, not only saving lives and saving the environment, but jobs. Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert opposed to the Inflation Reduction Act and has called for its repeal. For a second day in a row, students at a South Florida high school walked out of classes over the removal of five staff members who allegedly allowed a transgender student to play on the girls' volleyball team. Julia Cooper from member station WLRN has more. Monarch High School's principal, an assistant principal, the athletic director, and two others were officially removed from their positions after the school superintendent received a complaint about the volleyball player. A 2021 Florida law bars trans student athletes from playing on girls' sports teams. Broward County School Superintendent Peter Licata says the five staff members were relocated to work at non-school sites. We want to make sure we do this right. Nobody is guilty of anything at this point. That's what an investigation is for. The school's chief also says the district notified Tallahassee officials of the investigation. The staff members are all currently under investigation by the school district. For NPR News, I'm Julia Cooper. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow up 13, the Nasdaq down 23. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A small group of pro-Palestinian protesters carrying a banner disrupted the start of Boston City Council's meeting today. WBUR Simone Rios has more. Seven or eight protesters condemned the war in Gaza in the council chambers this afternoon, carrying a large banner and demanding that the council call for a ceasefire. 
Mr. Clerk, can you please call the roll to ascertain the quorum of a presence? We're in a brief recess. After a second interruption and recess, the protesters were escorted out of the chambers by City Hall security. The councillors have been unable to agree on largely symbolic resolutions calling for support for Israel or a ceasefire. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Massachusetts Congressman Lori Trahan is the latest member of the state's congressional delegation to be named to a Democratic leadership position. Trahan has been elected co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. She says she'll do everything within her power to defeat what she calls Republican extremism. The American people are relying on us to put them at the center of everything we do. And I think all you have to do is look at the Democratic caucus to know that we have the backs of the American people in all corners of our country. The committee is the body responsible for uniting House Democrats behind a shared message. A former public school IT manager will plead guilty in connection with a June cyber attack that targeted the school's computer network. 30-year-old Connor Lahiff used to work at the Whittier Regional Vocational Technical High School in Haverhill. The U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts says Lahiff used his administrative privileges to delete thousands of Apple IDs from the school's account after he was fired. They say he also disabled the school's phone system for a day. Lahiff faces up to a decade in prison and a fine of $250,000. This is WBUR. In the forecast, clear and dry overnight tonight, about 28 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, the first of a few milder days up in the mid-40s, mainly sunny skies. Friday, cloudy could reach the mid-50s. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Lawyers for the Securities and Exchange Commission appeared before the Supreme Court today and were met with skepticism from the conservative justices. At issue is the way the SEC conducts in-house enforcement proceedings to ensure the integrity of securities markets across the country. This case is one of several this term aimed at dismantling what some conservatives have derisively called the administration. NPR senior legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Today's case was brought by George Jarkissi, a former conservative radio talk show host and hedge fund manager. After a fraud investigation by the SEC and an in-house evidentiary hearing conducted by an administrative law judge, the SEC fined Jarkissi $300,000, ordered him to pay back nearly $700,000 in illicit gains, and barred him from various activities in the securities industry. He challenged the SEC actions in court, contending that he was entitled to a jury trial in federal court 
and that Congress didn't have the power to delegate such enforcement powers to the agency. Supporting his challenge is a virtual who's who of conservative and business groups. Although today's case involves several different constitutional challenges to the SEC's enforcement actions, the justices focused almost exclusively on one, the contention that the agency's in-house fact-finding process violated Jarkissi's Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. All six of the conservative justices questioned the notion that an administrative agency can impose penalties without the constitutional protection of the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. As Chief Justice Roberts put it, It seems to me that undermines the whole point of the constitutional protection in the first place. Several justices asked why there's a right to a jury trial in private lawsuits, but no such right when the government comes after you for securities violations. Deputy Solicitor General Brian Fletcher repeatedly replied that Congress has for some 80 years delegated these core executive enforcement powers to agencies that are charged with applying the law and imposing consequences for violations. Violations. If the SEC's administrative enforcement powers are unconstitutional, he said, so too might be similar enforcement powers at some 34 federal agencies, from the Food and Drug Administration to the Social Security Administration, which issues a whopping half million hearing and appeals decisions each year. As Fletcher put it, The assessment and collection of taxes and penalties, customs and penalties, the immigration laws, the detention and removal of non-citizens, all of those things have long been done in the first instance by administrative officers. Making the counter-argument, lawyer Michael McCulloch contended that only those functions that are analogous to laws at the time of the founding in 1791 are presumed to be legitimate. Justice Kagan interjected that in recent decades there have been no challenges to these administrative enforcement functions because those powers have been considered settled. That prompted this exchange. It's settled only to the extent no one's brought it up. And nobody has had the chutzpah, (laughs) to quote my people, to bring it up. Kagan noted that there have been three major tranches of securities legislation to strengthen enforcement. First, during the Great Depression in the 1930s, then after the savings and loan crisis, and then after the 2008 Great Recession, when huge investment banks failed. Each time, Congress thought, you know, something is going terribly wrong here. People are being harmed. And Congress said, we have to give the SEC greater authorities. I mean, is Congress's judgment entitled to no respect? The conservative court's answer to that question may well be no. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. On Thursday evening in Georgia, two ambitious young presidential hopefuls will face off in a highly anticipated primetime debate on Fox News. But only one of them is running in 2024. From member station KQED in San Francisco, Marisa Lagos reports on why California Governor Gavin Newsom is debating Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. When Democrat Newsom arrives Thursday to debate Republican DeSantis, it will hardly be the California governor's first foray into national politics. Last month, he traveled to both Israel and China to meet with top leaders. This spring, Newsom took his family on a tour of southern red states. And in September, he showed up in the spin room at the GOP presidential debate in Simi Valley, California, to appear on Sean Hannity's Fox News show. You have basically gone on a media tour sucking up to Joe Biden, and you know he's a cognitive mess. You know it. 
I also know he's got an extraordinary record oh, to run yeah. on. Really? And I couldn't be more proud. By the way, how's his record on the border? Objectively, he was the winner tonight. It's become no, a familiar role for Newsom, Joe Biden's surrogate. He's become the, the face of the loyal opposition. When he went to the Republican debate, uh, and he was, in essence, the Democratic response, right? Dan Strother is a Democratic political strategist who works across the country and is an outspoken fan of the California governor. He says it's all upside for Newsom right now as he prepares a run for the White House. Someday. Gavin Newsom will be president. The only question is when. And, uh, and that's what he's doing. He's, he's positioning himself. You know, does that get under the skin of the Biden people? I don't think so because Gavin has been so overboard in support of the president. For his part, Newsom has repeatedly insisted he's not running. And when he's asked, like on News Nation in September, he almost always pivots to talking up the current Democratic president. I have deep respect, reverence for Joe Biden as a person, his character, his decency, and his capacity to do great things. That's why I'm not worthy of that conversation. But Robin Swanson, a political consultant in California, agrees that Newsom is preparing for an eventual run and says in the meantime, he's making himself useful to the Biden campaign. Gavin Newsom has to walk the line of running a shadow campaign while being President Biden's biggest cheerleader. And the funny thing is, if anyone understands that and the, all of the politics behind that, it's Joe Biden. That was a man who waited in the wings for a very long time. Swanson and other observers say that as a surrogate from the most populous state in the nation, Newsom brings a lot to the table for Biden and national Democrats. Thad Kauser, a political science professor at the University of California, San Diego, notes that Newsom has made himself a spokesman for progressive values, from abortion access to LGBT rights. This is what a proxy does for you, right? A proxy can rally the base and energize your base without worrying about turning off the middle. That's particularly important, he says, since polls are showing that Biden is weak with young voters and voters of color who may be more excited by a progressive message. His base is not yet is not excited and solidly behind him. And so Joe Biden will welcome anything that, that keeps progressives, younger voters in the fold. On the Republican side, DeSantis is also positioning himself as the standard bearer of conservative values, the mirror image of Newsom on issues like abortion and LGBT rights. That means that at this matchup, unlike most presidential debates, both could come out as winners, says Selena Zito. She's a national political reporter at the conservative Washington Examiner and columnist at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I think it's smart for both men. Both men are the future of their parties. They could both walk out of this and both gain support. Zito says Newsom's habit of showing up in red states and on Fox News could even win him some swing voters when he's actually on the ballot for president. For NPR News, I'm Marisa Lagos in San Francisco. And this is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Trefflers, specializing in the restoration of furniture, decorative arts, paintings, and upholstery by skilled artisans. Custom framing, too, in Newton and at treffler.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. The crisis in journalism has been chronicled many times over. The pandemic and current economic conditions hasten the decline. Most of the focus has been on newspapers, but even WBUR's own future is far from assured. That's why we need more members and member dollars. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the single best thing you can do to keep our journalism going. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you 
Thank you so much. If you've already given, if you haven't, please do it right now. The number is 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. When you give monthly, it means that we can be more prepared to weather the downtimes. And there was certainly a downtime in the pandemic. Everyone, including us, is still recovering from this. Um, And for you, if things change for you in your own budget, when you give on a monthly basis, you can always change the amount that you're giving. And we try to make it as flexible for you as possible. If you can give, please do it as generously as you can right now on a monthly basis or as an individual pledge, 1-800-909-9287, or do it online at WBUR.org. By the way, I'm Lisa Mullins here with Anthony Brooks. Hey, Lisa. Yeah, and we've got a couple of ways to say thank you or to provide some extra incentives uh, for you to contribute right now. Give now, and you could win a trip anywhere in the world. You'll be eligible to win a trip. Is that all? Yeah, that's it. I mean, unbelievable. Anywhere in the world, you'll be eligible to win a chance. Medford. (laughs) To customize. This is a customized getaway uh, to anywhere in the world. So no matter what your dream vacation looks like, this is your chance. A $10,000 customized trip from CBT Travel. Um, We also have a baseball shirt, a WBUR baseball shirt, as our thanks for a pledge of $12.00. Uh, per month and give by seven o'clock and pick up the shirt as our thanks for your contribution of twelve dollars a month before it goes to twenty dollars a month and you'll be entered uh, as well to win a trip for two anywhere in the world you want to go my name is terry i'm from worcester the number one place on my bucket list is lebanon because my grandparents came from there i'm debbie from needham and i've always wanted to visit alaska in order to see the natural beauty of Denali National Park. My name is Caroline from Cambridge, and the number one place on my bucket list is Egypt. And I've always wanted to go because of the pyramids, ruins, and the incredible history and culture that there is to see there. Anthony Brooks, where would you want to go? Hmm, you know, all kinds of places. You've been everywhere already. Well, I wouldn't say that. I think I'd like to go to New Zealand. Um, that's just what Steve Brown said. And that I think right? that that's a very smart move because it's so expensive. Um, so this is a great opportunity for you right now, along with all the other reasons to give to WBUR, because you will be entered into the sweepstakes to win this fantastic trip to anywhere you like. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And on a different scale, you have... Uh, on your body, if you choose to, a classic baseball shirt that has a modern fit for your pledge of $12 per month. As Anthony said, it goes up to $20 per month after 7 o'clock tonight. So um, when you get the um, sweatshirt, it's not a sweatshirt, the baseball shirt, you will also automatically be entered in to win the trip to anywhere in the world that you desire. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Of course, these are all added incentives. The real reason we're asking you to call is to support the journalism that WBUR provides, independent journalism. We want it to be there for you for generations to come. But the truth is our future is not guaranteed. Uh, We're counting increasingly on the voluntary support of listeners like you to keep our reporting strong. We just can't do it without your financial support. So now is the time to make uh, your tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org. You can also go to give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. 
And think about when you listen to WBUR, what it is that you appreciate about the station. Very likely because it's independent. You don't have to listen to commercials um, because of the credibility that we bring with our sources that we choose, the writing that we have, the uh, strict editing that we have on our scripts as well. All of this adds up to a great radio station, and that adds up to listeners wanting to listen to more but because we don't have commercials because we are independent we rely on you for the vast majority of our operating budget so now is the time to tell us that we mean something to you and you want us to be strong for 2024 and beyond 1-800-909-9287 wbur.org please make the call if you haven't if you have thank you so much if you haven't do it now thank you Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. It wasn't the first time that NFL player Jesse Lucetta had issues with his front left tire. But on Sunday, the Cardinals linebacker found himself at a Phoenix gas station with a flat and just 45 minutes left till he had to be at the stadium for Sunday's game. He noticed a family dressed all in Cardinals gear filling up their tank next to him. So... He asked for a ride. The Phillips family got him to the stadium with a few minutes to spare. J.W. Phillips was that helpful driver, and he is with us now. Hi there. Hi, how are you today? I am well. J.W., tell us about last Saturday. What happened? Yeah, it still feels like a whirlwind. Um, Pumping gas to get to the game. Jesse was behind us and said, hey, I got a flat. Are you going to the stadium? Can I get your ride with you? He hopped in, and the rest was history. Okay, but did you believe him at first? I mean, if a guy showed up in an NFL jersey next to me, I might question this a little bit, not let him in my car. Yeah, yeah, that uh, for sure a bit, because I, I didn't know him, I'll be very honest. And uh, when I went back to the car, my wife said, are you sure he plays? And I was like, hey, either way, we're going to give him a ride. And that was it. <laughs> what was the ride to the stadium like? I mean, I'm trying to imagine what one would talk to a linebacker about just minutes before he's heading into a game. Yeah, actually, it was funny. It was probably the most friendly family of five and a new friend conversation you could imagine from what you do for Thanksgiving? Where are you from? Yes, football came up. But for the most part, he's just one of the nicest human beings you've ever met. Family of five, I heard you say this has got to have been the coolest experience for your kids. What did they think? Yeah, it was really cool. My son Brody was actually playing at halftime, funny enough, uh, for the local flag league. So that put the cherry on top of it all. (laughs) How long have you been a Cardinals fan? A long time. A long time. Yeah. We, uh, funny enough, we went to uh, the same game last year. And uh, my wife, funny enough, just to kind of spread the awareness of it, it's Epilepsy Awareness Month. And my wife wasn't able to go. She actually had two brain surgeries at Mayo. So this was kind of an anniversary of a few things. Um, So it was really cool. That has to have been incredible. I understand, according to the Associated Press, that the Cardinals gave you a gift of tickets to their game against the San Francisco 49ers. Do you all have any special plans for that game? 
No, just going to go cheer the team on. Um, hopefully get to see Jesse again and say thank you. But other than that, just, just there to cheer the team on. Are you still in touch with Lucetta? And do you know if he was ever able to get that pesky tire fixed? I haven't talked to him since. Um, I do know through some, some back channels that uh, he did get roadside assistance <laughs> that night and the car did get fixed. So he uh, he's back in action and on the road. I'm curious, what stands out to you? I know you said this was a very warm and friendly conversation with Lucetta and your family. Is there anything about that conversation that stands out to you? I think the biggest thing, and I've been telling people this, everyone I've talked to about this, he is just one of the nicest human beings you will ever meet. He is a 6'5", you know, 280-pound linebacker in the NFL. After you talk to him for 10 or 15 seconds, he's the most just unintimidating, nicest person you've ever met. I mean, what an incredible story. Most people do not get an encounter like that out of just stopping to get some gas on their way to a football game. Pretty lucky, huh? Yeah, it's definitely one for the books and uh, a story all for sure passed down through the generations. That is J.W. Phillips in Scottsdale, Arizona, who helped out an NFL player when he had issues with his left front tire. J.W., thank you so much and hope you have fun at that game. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. You too. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Provider Group, an insurance, brokerage, and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Many of our listeners tell us WBUR is essential in their lives. They say WBUR makes the world a better and more informed place. We're the news source they trust most, and we want to be here for the long term. But our future isn't guaranteed. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the best thing you can do to keep this essential service strong. Be our lifeline. Give monthly at WBUR.org. When you decide to give monthly, um, we can recommend, say, starting if you want at $10 a month. If you can do $100 a month, as some people can, we would appreciate that. What happens is that you help us um, be strong for whatever news is coming down the pike. I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks, by the way. And I just want to mention, Anthony, you and I didn't talk about this before, but you know, we very often say, please um, uh, keep WBR strong for the news, not just the elections, which you'll be covering, um, the elections that are coming up that we anticipate, but also the events we don't anticipate. Our last fund drive ended October 5th, two days before the attack by Hamas on Israel. We didn't know we were going to have to cover that. And now NPR has more than 30 journalists in Israel and Gaza covering the conflict since September, since yeah. October 7th. This is just one of the things that we need to be prepared for. Your dollars right now help us do just that. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, I mean, it's really the nature of this business that we don't know what's coming around the corner, but you can count on the fact that we will be here to cover it. And that's because of the support you give us. And we've got a couple of... Um, ways to say thank you. Give now and you could win a trip to anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world, Lisa. Where would you go? Anywhere I in the world. I don't know. I'll, I'll think about it because <laughs> I know you're dying to know. So I'll, yeah. All right. So this is a $10,000 customized trip from CBT Travel that can be used for air and ground travel, hotel accommodations, etc. to go anywhere in the world. <laughs> you and someone uh, that you'd like to travel with. And uh, for a $12 pledge until 7 o'clock or $12 per month pledge. We will use your contribution to bring more of the journalism you rely on and we'll show our appreciation by giving you a WBUR 
baseball shirt, which is a pretty sharp item of clothing to have as winter begins to close in on us. So there it is, a baseball shirt and uh, the possibility to win a trip anywhere in the world. If you call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Kayla from Burlington, New Jersey, and I would say that the spot on top of my vacation bucket list right now is Rio de Janeiro. Hi, this is Casey from Somerville. My number one bucket list destination is Australia. I would love to go there because my parents lived there when they were in their 20s, and I'd love to just walk in their footsteps and see the sights that they saw and see the old apartment that they lived in, just get to experience all the animals and the nature and the culture that is in Australia. Panama wouldn't be bad. Uh, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. If you decide that you want to get that great long sleeve baseball shirt that Anthony mentioned earlier um, as our thanks for your pledge of $12 a month, it becomes 20 by the way, a month after 7 o'clock. When you get that, when you make your pledge, you will also automatically be entered in to win that trip to anywhere from WBUR thanks to CBT Travel. one 800 909 9287wbur.org. And by the way, anybody who is a monthly contributor automatically gets entered into win any of the sweepstakes that we offer. You count on WBUR to cover this moment that we're living in, in, in ways that really help you make sense of it. This means deep reporting on the war in Gaza. This means deep reporting on the war in Ukraine, the economy, the aftermath of the midterm elections. The presidential elections, which are coming right up, climate change, immigration, uh, education, health care, all of these things uh, affect your life. And it's why WBUR invests in the kind of journalism that it does. But we can't maintain our investment without your investment. So we're asking you to give us a call right now and support the journalism, independent journalism that you rely on at WBUR.org or give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. We know many of the reasons that you turn to us include the fact that we are independent. We're independent thanks to your contributions in the past and hopefully in the future as well. Um, What you get is journalism that challenges assumptions, uh, that holds officials to account, um, that tells you the stories to the best of our ability with all the information that we gather. We cannot do this without your contribution at WBUR. This is the time to make a year-end contribution. So start, if you can, and if you haven't yet, a monthly gift at WBUR by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. Call that number right now. What you're doing is providing the largest share of support for independent journals. And we don't have corporate overlords. We don't do daily commercials. We don't have paywalls. We have you right now, our largest share of funding. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We're really grateful for your support. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments, As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. 
From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Israeli military says 10 more Israelis and four Thai citizens have been released to the Red Cross after being held hostage by Hamas. That's in addition to two Russian-Israeli dual citizens who were released by Hamas earlier today. Meanwhile, Israel is preparing to release several Palestinian prisoners and detainees in response to the deal between the two parties. NPR's Kat Lonsdorf reports from Tel Aviv. Video shot in Gaza by NPR producer Anas Baba at the southern Rafah crossing into Egypt shows a row of jeeps with the Red Cross insignia driving through the night, freed hostages huddled in the back seats. This is the sixth day of such a sight, part of a deal that led to the pause in fighting and relative calm in Gaza right now. There are still more than 100 hostages held by Hamas in Gaza and thousands of Palestinians in Israeli jails, many of whom are being held without charges. This was the final scheduled day of the pause and exchanges, but talks are underway for an extension. Kat Lonsdorf, NPR News, Tel Aviv. President Biden said an Israeli-American woman was among the hostages freed today and that she's now in Egypt. Democrat Chuck Schumer delivered an address this morning on the Senate floor condemning anti-Semitism. The majority leader said he wanted to share the fears felt by Jewish Americans after Hamas's attack on Israel. NPR's Eric McDaniel has more. Schumer, the most senior Jewish elected official in American history, said that criticism of Israel and its government is not inherently anti-Semitic, but that he was seeing some things that concerned him. While many protesters no doubt view their actions as a compassionate expression of solidarity with the Palestinian people, for many Jewish Americans, we feel in too many instances, some of the most extreme rhetoric gives license to darker ideas that have always lurked below the surface. While Jewish Americans represent just 2% of the U.S. population, Schumer said, they are the targets of more than half of religious-based hate crimes reported to the FBI. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, the Capitol Building. Schools across the U.S. will soon be able to order free rapid COVID-19 tests from the federal government. NPR's Will Stone reports the new initiative was announced today and will allow about 19,000 school districts to order tests. The Biden administration expects millions of rapid tests will flow from the federal stockpile to school districts as they enter the winter months, a time when COVID-19 activity is expected to peak. Already, emergency department visits and wastewater data indicate cases are climbing. Don O'Connell is Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services. We are optimistic that the school districts across the country will take advantage of these free tests and put them to use in their communities this winter. She says they hope schools will share the tests with students, staff, and family. Will Stone, NPR News. Stocks closed mixed today. The Dow rose 13 points. NASDAQ fell 23. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts House and Senate both adjourned today without taking action on the delayed supplemental budget. The budget contains funding for the state's emergency shelter system and negotiated pay raises for our unionized state workers. A review by the Boston Globe found that House lawmakers have taken fewer votes at this point in their two-year session than in any other session in the past two decades. A small group of pro-Palestinian protesters disrupted the start of Boston's city council meeting today. Up to eight people carrying a large banner demanded the council call for a ceasefire. After a second interruption, the protesters were escorted out of the chambers by City Hall security. Last month, a resolution calling for a ceasefire and another expressing support for Israel were tabled by the council chair. Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Justice David Lowy is retiring. Lowy informed Governor Maura Healey he'll step down in February. UMass President Marty Meehan says Lowy will be the university system's next general counsel. A clear and dry night ahead tonight, about 28 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, the first of a few milder days, up in the mid-40s, mainly sunny skies. Friday should turn cloudy, but it should reach the mid-50s and right around 50 degrees for the weekend. 33 degrees now in Boston at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. What are the biggest threats to democracy? Well, misinformation, voter suppression, and... How about the steep decline of local journalism? I'm Elsa Chang. WBUR and NPR believe that public media is the enduring future of local reporting. But we won't win the fight on our own. We need more member dollars to be your eyes and ears when important decisions are made, to bring more diverse voices into the conversation, and to be the ones to hold power to account. Become a member today at WBUR.org. We try to make it as easy as possible for you. What we're asking for is for you to understand your role in this station, that everything that you hear on the air 24-7, everything you get from WBUR.org comes from your contributions, not commercials. There's no paywall. Uh, we don't have uh, huge corporate dollars coming our way. It comes from you. So that's why Elsa Chang there just said we need more members and more member dollars. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks. If you can become a monthly contributor, then please do that. Right. And lots of reasons to support WBUR right now, particularly in this moment. But we've got an added incentive right now, and that's thanks to a group of uh, generous listeners. Anything you give right now will be matched dollar for dollar. That's that's That includes monthly contributions. That includes one-time gifts. So here's a chance uh, to really double the impact of your gift right now, but it's not going to last forever. So give us a call right now at 1-800-909-9287 or give at WBUR.org. Again, what you're supporting here is independent journalism. We're counting on you because you provide the largest share of our funding. And now here's an opportunity to double the impact of your contribution. Again, it's not going to last forever. So take advantage of it right now and call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I don't know how many radio stations keep you in the driveway so that you can listen to the end of whatever the story is because it's fascinating and because you're really learning something from it. And WBUR definitely does that. You feel like you've actually grasped the meaning behind what you're listening to and why something's happening. 
they sort of unpack an issue and they get people from industry, from policy, from the research world to speak on whatever the topic is. And so you get a well-rounded look at whatever the issue is. WBUR allows for the gray area, what it would look like if there wasn't a right answer or if there are many right answers. For all the reasons you listen, give monthly at WBUR.org. If you can give monthly, right now is a special deal for you because we have a dollar-for-dollar match. It is not going to be lasting long, but it means that right now, if you make a monthly gift of, let's say, $15 a month, it automatically becomes 30 Not a penny more comes from your bank account. It is taken care of by some generous members of our Morrow Society. If you can do $100 or $100 a month, then that becomes obviously 200 The number again, one 800 909 9287wbur.org. This is the first match of the entire uh, mid-afternoon. I don't know what we did earlier, but I wasn't, I was doing other things, but we know that we haven't had one so far. And so this will be the last one of the day, and we hope that you will take advantage of it right now. 1-800-909-9287wbur.org. When you support WBUR, we're going to use your money and turn it into more of the programs and the news stories that you listen to, that you count on, that you read at wbur.org, that you hear over the air. That means more global and national coverage, more deeply local reporting that helps you understand the important issues going on right around you in your own community. So give 10 20 or $30 a month, whatever you can afford. Uh, you can be assured that WBUR will put that money to good use. Um, and also understand that you are providing the largest share of our support right now at really a crucial time for journalism. Um, lots of Institutions of journalism are flatlining, not WBUR, and that's thanks to you. But our future is not assured, so we're, we're coming to you now and asking you for your support at WBUR.org or give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. Only 50 minutes to go before this match opportunity is over, so we hope you'll take advantage of it right now. And it applies, by the way, to monthly subscriptions, and we really hope you will be a monthly contributor if you can, uh, and to individual ones as well. So if you want to make a one-time gift, it's going to be matched. If you want to make monthly gifts, they will be matched. Uh, One of the benefits of the monthly gifts are that you get entered into when any sweepstakes that we have to offer, including the one from CBT Travel with a trip to anywhere in the world that your heart desires. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Do it to uh, support the independent journalism uh, that you hear right here on WBUR and think about what that means. It means we're not beholden to uh, commercial interests, to corporate overlords. Uh, We just follow the news wherever it goes. We tell the stories that need to be told And you are the reason for that independence because you provide the largest share of the funding. So give us a call at at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thanks. Thank you very much. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The U.S. Justice Department announced charges today against an Indian national for allegedly taking part in a murder-for-hire scheme on American soil, a scheme orchestrated by an Indian government employee. 
The alleged plan was to assassinate an American citizen who is a leader in the Sikh separatist movement. Now, this announcement comes just months after Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, accused India's government of plotting to kill a Canadian citizen who was a Sikh separatist leader. Joining me to discuss this are NPR's Ryan Lucas, who covers the Justice Department. Hey, Ryan. Hi there. And our international affairs correspondent, Jackie Northam. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. Hi. Okay, so Ryan, kick us off. There are a lot of strange parts to to what I just described. We know this was announced today in New York, the mm-hmm. case. We know one person has been charged. What do we know about that person who's been charged and who the target was? Well, the defendant is a 52-year-old Indian national by the name of Nikhil Gupta. Uh, court papers say he was previously involved with international drugs and weapons trafficking. Uh, and prosecutors say he played a leading role putting together this alleged murder-for-hire scheme. But he is the only one who's been charged. Mm -hmm. And the really interesting thing here is that the indictment says the plot as a whole was directed by someone else, by an Indian government employee described in the the indictment as a senior field officer with intelligence responsibilities. That, of course, suggests the possible hand here of the Indian government. Uh, And the goal of this alleged plot was to murder, as you said, a Sikh activist in New York City. The activist is not named in the indictment, but we've learned that it was Gurpatwant Singh Panoon. He's the general counsel for Sikhs for Justice. Uh, Panoon has also confirmed that he was the target, and he called this alleged plot uh, a, quote, blatant case of India's transnational terrorism. And what exactly was was the alleged plot? What was supposed to go down? Well, this whole thing came together pretty quickly earlier this year. Court papers say the Indian government employee recruited Gupta in May to orchestrate this murder. In return, the Indian official offered to get a criminal case in India against Gupta dismissed. But once Gupta was on board, he got to work quickly. Prosecutors say he contacted someone in the criminal underworld uh, for help arranging a hitman in the U.S. to carry out this assassination. The problem the problem was the person that Gupta contacted was, in fact, a confidential source for U.S. law enforcement. Uh-huh. That confidential source put Gupta in touch with a hitman, but that purported hitman was, in fact, an undercover DEA officer. The indictment says they ended up talking logistics and price, and ultimately the Indian government employee agreed to, agreed to pay uh, $100,000 for the murder. This is a price that was brokered by Gupta. Around this time, the Indian government employee also was passing along details on the target's home address, phone numbers, details on their daily routine. Court papers say Gupta pushed the hitman to carry out this murder as soon as possible. But at the same time, he was making clear that it shouldn't happen during high-level talks between U.S. and Indian officials. Uh, Then in late June, this whole plot was foiled when authorities in the Czech Republic arrested Gupta at the request of the United States. Okay, so as we wrap our heads around all that, Jackie Northam, hop in here. Is this big news in India? Are we hearing any response from authorities there? Yeah, it is. It's big news in India, of course. I mean, India's foreign ministry announced just this morning, as it turns out, just ahead of the news out of the Justice Department, that it had set up a high-level inquiry earlier this month into the incident and that it would take follow-up action if necessary. Now, we haven't heard from New Delhi since on this uh, particular DOJ revelation. You know, the Biden administration put out a statement as well about the incident, and interestingly, it said it would be providing information to India's government to help aid its internal investigation, and that it expects some accountability. And, you know, that's seen as, by some as a rather restrained response to the allegations, you know, of an attempted extrajudicial killing, extrajudicial killing on U.S. soil, especially by a country that the U.S. considers a 
a partner, a democratic partner. And, you know, some analysts point out that the contrast between similar events, if, you know, perhaps Russia was involved. Would be a very different reaction, one would expect. So what explains mm -hmm. this restrained response by the U.S.? Because, again, just to underscore, if what the Justice Department says happened actually happened, this was an assassination attempt on an American mm -hmm. inside the U.S., yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the, the restrained response probably or largely is because the Biden administration, you know, it's been over the f past few years have been trying to strengthen its uh, security and diplomatic ties with India as a way to counter China's dominance you know, in the Indo-Pacific region. And, you know, this is, incident could seriously complicate that strategy. The administration knew about this attempted assassination going back to July and several high-level administration officials traveled to India since then to meet with their counterparts about it, including CIA Director William Burns and Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines. You know, even Biden talked to Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi about it, uh, you know, on the sidelines of the G20. You know, and finally today, the Justice Department stepped in. So analysts say this pragmatism, you know, it reflects the administration's desire to strike a balance between its strategic interests, China, uh, with its values, you know, its opposition to extrajudicial killings. Okay, so there have been all these talks, all these meetings at the highest level of the Biden administration with India. Now it's out in the open. We know about it. What happens now? Ryan, you first. Well, on the Justice Department front, as I said a bit earlier, Gupta was arrested in June in the Czech Republic. Um, he's still there and will be as his extradition proceedings play out. And Jackie? Well, as far as diplomacy goes, you know, the strategy of using India as a counterweight to China is important to the Biden administration. But, you know, this incident has clearly tarnished the relationship. And it's hard to see if it will have a long-term damaging effect on that relationship. We'll have to see what the Indian investigation into the incident discovers and whether anyone is held to account. And in a statement today, National Security Council spokesperson uh, Adrian Watson said the government of India was clear with the administration that they were taking the investigation seriously. Okay. Detailed reporting there from NPR's Jackie Northam and Ryan Lucas. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thanks so much. Ballot shortages are a rare occurrence in American elections, but they do happen. That was the case earlier this month in some polling locations in Mississippi and Ohio. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports on why voters may encounter those ballot shortages. Voting rights groups in Mississippi had a network of people monitoring polling sites on Election Day. Things were going smoothly until about midday. We started getting calls about polling locations running out of ballots. That's Haria Tarkin with the Mississippi Center for Justice. She says they were getting calls from Hines County, the state's most populous and a predominantly black county. Some locations had already run out of ballots by the time a poll monitor called us, and some we got calls where, you know, they had 14 ballots left but 100 people in line. Tarkin says there was a scramble to make sure those polling sites got additional ballots. She says in a lot of cases, it took a while, up to two hours, which led to some extremely long lines. We can say for certain that there were individuals who walked away from the lines because of how long they were. It's unclear what caused the ballot shortage in Hines County, but at least one official told local media they didn't think that many people would vote. Local election officials are supposed to order ballots for 60% of active voters, which is required by state law. Ballot shortages don't happen often, but they are serious problems when they do. 
David Becker with the Center for Election Innovation and Research says that's why, for the most part, election officials are really careful when they're trying to figure out how many ballots to print. When counties, especially counties that have to pre-print ballots, have to plan for the next election, it's an inexact science. They're doing this based on past turnout in similar elections, and they want to get it right. This is also true in places that don't need to pre-print ballots. In Texas, many counties have centralized vote centers, which print out individualized ballots once a voter shows up. In 2022, the state's largest county, Harris County, had shortages of blank paper ballots, which resulted in criminal investigations, lawsuits, and the state restructuring how the county's elections are run. As a way to avoid these situations, some states, like Mississippi, have laws in place about how many ballots election officials need to have on hand. But Tammy Patrick with the National Association of Election Officials says those kinds of laws come with their own cost. In those states, um, it's quite frequent that they are recycling volumes and volumes of ballots that go unvoted because the voters don't participate. Patrick says unused ballots could end up costing local officials thousands, even millions of dollars. That's why she says most states don't have rules about how many ballots officials need to print. So figuring it out is left up to some guesswork, a little art and science. Sometimes it, it is absolutely the case where you're trying to read the tea leaves, as it were. So you're, you're paying attention to how much your community is paying attention to the election. So are there a lot of street signs, candidate signs up? Are you getting a lot of phone calls into your office with questions about the election? Have you seen an uptick in voter registration or requests for absentee ballots? Patrick says besides requests for absentee ballots, one of the best indicators of interest in an election ahead of election day is early voting. But of course, that is only if a state has these options for voters. Mississippi, for example, doesn't have early voting or no excuse absentee voting. Election expert David Becker says in states like that, calculating how many ballots you need carries with it a much higher degree of risk. Because all of the voting behavior, almost all of the ballots, are going to be cast on a single day. If you get something wrong, that leaves you very little time to fix it. That puts a lot of pressure on election officials to accurately predict voter turnout, which isn't easy. And Becker says it's often the case that vulnerable communities, which already have fewer resources, are most affected by ballot shortages. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It was a mixed result on Wall Street today. The Dow rose a small fraction of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both lost ground. S&P fell about a tenth of a percent. The NASDAQ dipped nearly two-tenths of a percent. The recently opened restaurant Lairhouse in Inman Square in Somerville has earned a unique honor. Its co-founder tells Boston.com that Lairhouse is the first kosher establishment to be on Esquire's list of the best new restaurants in America. The restaurant features Jewish noshes, including kugel, smoked salmon, and it also holds community events. 
In the forecast overnight tonight, clear, moonlit skies, temperatures all the way down to the upper 20s. Tomorrow should be a little bit milder than today was, could reach the mid-40s. Then the rest of the week should be on the milder side as well. Friday breaking into the 50s, should turn cloudy though during the day, maybe a little bit of rain. The weekend could inch up to about 50 degrees. This is WBUR, it's 624. WBUR supporters include AMS and the Weather Channel, presenting the power of precipitation. Here scientists discuss whether we're getting more or less snow, what a winter El Nino means, how ocean temperatures affect our weather, and more. December 1st at City Space. Delicious food and drinks included. Tickets at itowardsthesky.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Misinformation is having a profound impact on our country. We need strong voices that tell the truth and deliver the facts. WBUR amplifies those voices, and its strength is listener support. Monthly contributions to WBUR ensure that hundreds of thousands of listeners get information they need to make critical decisions every day. Not a monthly contributor yet? You can make a meaningful difference at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And please do it right now because whether you want to become a monthly uh, supporter, which we hope you will, or whether you want to do one individual gift, your money will be matched dollar for dollar only until 7 o'clock tonight. That means you have 35 minutes. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR.org. Anthony Brooks, I don't know about you, but I would sort of like it if people came on the early side of that 35 minutes? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, look, this is a great opportunity because we're living through a time right now where houses of journalism are under a lot of strain. Lots of them are shutting down. WBUR is going strong, and that's because of your support. And it's not something we take for granted, and we can't take our future for granted unless you continue to support us. So here is a great opportunity where you can double the impact of your support. If you're feeling particularly generous and can do $5,000, for example, this is going to turn that gift into $10,000. So it's a great opportunity to really double uh, the impact of your generosity at a time when it's never been needed more. So give us a call right now. Take advantage of that dollar uh, for dollar match, which is only going to be with us for another 35 minutes or so by giving us a call at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. WBUR welcomes the conversation. There's always room for everyone to have a voice, whether it's a college student or an expert in the field. There's equal value given to everyone's opinion. There's definitely a community of listeners and people who I respect and admire and like to talk to. Very often things will come up about, you know, did you hear about so-and-so on BUR this morning? Did you hear about what happened? Did you hear about this story? Did you hear that interview? So it is a common connecting point. I feel like I am part of a larger community. I've never met these other people, but I feel like I'm connected with them, like aligned with a common purpose. We all want a thoughtful, deep, examined way of living. I really believe in the mission of WBUR and the strength that is created when we all give our own little part. Strengthen your community. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And that idea of a common purpose is so true because what we provide is what we know that you want because you've told us in the past that you want it, and now that you're listening to it, we hope you'll support it. 
1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. If you can become a monthly subscriber, please do that, and you will have your pledge matched. So if you would like to uh, give maybe $50 a month, it'll become 100 a month, 100 a month becomes 200 a month, and so on. As Anthony said, if you can swing at this point at the end of year in your giving list, if you can swing a $5,000 pledge, we would appreciate that. Any pledge would be contribute to our overall goal in this fund drive, and that is basically to stay strong and stay independent and ready to cover whatever news comes our way. Again, the number, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, and I think that's uh, the key point here. The world changes every day. One thing that doesn't change is our commitment to, to be here for you no matter what. And, an- and another thing that doesn't change is how important our members are to WBUR. Our members are our partners. That's you. Uh, in providing independent journalism. It's your passion and your financial support that fuels our journalism. And uh, so here's a great opportunity uh, to double that passion, double the impact of uh, your financial support. Until 7 o'clock, we have this dollar-for-dollar match. So take advantage of it right now. Anything that you pledge, whether it's monthly or a one-time gift, is going to be doubled thanks to this match, but only till 7 o'clock. So give us a call at one 800 909 or WBUR.org. So that's 31 minutes away, and uh, we hope that you will take advantage of this it's, uh, to act as a little bit of an incentive, but it really goes a long way, especially when you call in and make a monthly contribution because it keeps us very strong for the start of the new year. And, uh, and if you can make a, a one-time pledge, we certainly appreciate that as well. We just want to make it as comfortable for you and your budget as possible. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We are so grateful to everybody who supports us, and that includes our underwriters. It includes foundations that are generous generous enough to give us funding. You are the vast majority of our operating budget. Your individual contributions add up to what you hear on the air, what you get at WBUR.org, what you get in our newsletters, in our podcasts, uh, what you get at City Space, what you hear on the common. This all is because of you. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. 